You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Um, so my name is CJ. I work for Mockingbird. Um, this breakout session is going to start off, um, as many good things do, uh, with Taylor Swift. Um, of whom I am a pretty big fan. Um, but we're going to start off in uh, 2009, um, back when Taylor was uh, 20, just a wee 20 years old. Um, she had already released two um, uh, really widely released albums, um, the second of which sold, had sold millions of copies. Um, and at this time, uh, her, her song, You Belong With Me, was insanely popular. Um, so I have a quick video to kind of get us all back in the mindset of 2009. Um, so you can hit that. Here are the nominees for Best Female Video. Best Female Video. Lady Gaga, Poker Face. Best female video goes to Taylor Swift. someday, but I never actually thought that would happen. Uh, I sing country music, so thank you so much for giving me a chance to win a VMA award. I... Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Best I've had, Kid Cudi got day and night. I could do this. I could be Tracy Gaga. I'm gonna be MTV's best artist. Um, okay, so uh, what you guys just saw is what everyone 
uh, watching the 2009 VMAs saw, um, which was the beginning of a really juicy celebrity feud, uh, which continued over the course of the next seven years, um, during which time Kanye asked Taylor for forgiveness and then reneged. Um, and then Taylor offered forgiveness, but always seemed to do so in a way that was a little backhanded. Um, neither of the celebrities could really drop it, and neither could the media. Um, so we're going to fast forward to 2016, last spring, when Kanye released his latest album, The Life of Pablo, um, which some people called just a total mess, but others thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I also happen to be a fan of Kanye's, though probably uh, slightly less so, just because his genre it's a little harder for me to access, which may be self-explanatory. Um, <laughs> so anyways, on that album, he wrote a song called Famous, uh, in which he calls Taylor Swift the B-word and says there's a good chance that he might still sleep with her, um, which is not the classiest of lines, no matter what your religion is. Um, that song obviously erupted in the press, um, and Kanye, to justify himself, tweeted that Taylor had pre-approved the lyrics during an hour-long phone conversation with him, um, to which Taylor's rep replied um, that Kanye did not call for approval, they said. When, they did, um, when Kanye and Taylor did talk about it, she declined and cautioned Kanye about releasing a song with such a strong misogynistic message. Taylor was never made aware of the actual lyric in which Kanye calls her the B-word. Um, so at this, obviously, Taylor's fans are just livid. Um, but then the plot thickens when Kanye's personal agent, Kim Kardashian, who's also his wife, <laughs> um, uploaded this video on Snapchat, which in it you'll hear um, Kanye talking with Taylor in private about her song, and Taylor actually approves uh, part of the lyrics. So, what are we to think? Um, maybe that Taylor's not as innocent as she would have us think? Uh, that she lied to Kanye? Or that Kanye lied to her and kind of set her up a little bit? Well, the final word about the entire feud comes to us from Taylor Swift. She responded on her Instagram with a response which media would later say was instantly iconic. This is what she wrote. Being falsely painted as a liar when I was never given the full story is character assassination. I would very much like to be excluded from this narrative, one that I never asked to be a part of since 2009. So there are several interesting things about this response. 
First, that the entire conflict is described in purely literary terms. Taylor's character is being assassinated. She's not given the full story. She's being pulled into a narrative uh, that she just doesn't like, one that she doesn't have control over, one that she didn't write for herself. Um, so last summer, a guy named Spencer Kornhaber over at The Atlantic uh, picked up on the strangeness of this. He writes, not long ago, it might have seemed strange for most people outside of an English seminar to casually throw around the word narrative, much less a Nashville pop star known for her love of cats and Christmas. But here we are in the age of the personal brand where people like Swift, West, and Kim Kardashian have popularized the notion of popular culture and maybe all of life as a tangle of managed storylines that may or may not be rooted in fact. There are political and personal and social readings to be made of the ongoing spat between these three celebrities. Yet Swift has presented her current problem as purely meta. She's mad explicitly at not being in control of this narrative. So the question is, is this even a narrative at all? And if it is, is it a truthful one? In the narrative that Taylor was writing, she was a victim of circumstance. In the narrative that Kanye was writing, Taylor was just lucky to be associated with him. Which one is true? And we can read this through a number of different lenses, um, which might help us read a, reach a conclusion. Uh, maybe it's a story about race, or maybe it's a story about gender, or maybe it's about art, which is what, um, it's the conclusion that Beyonce drew um, in an interview after the 2009 incident. She said that Kanye grabbing the mic from Taylor was um, just a defense of art. So any way you slice it, hopefully you can see that there's more going on here uh, than one simple narrative. Uh, seeing it as, as a narrative inevitably shaves off certain details, which may reveal more complicated truths about human nature as a whole. I think that Taylor Swift is probably more like an everyman than her album sales might suggest. Um, so if she's not setting trends, she's probably bringing to light trends that already exist around us. And what her story ultimately reveals is that narrative is a buzzword, and it's a reductive one, usually. Um, so I did a quick Google search for this word just the other day, typing the word narrative into the search bar, and I clicked on the news um, button to see popular uses of it. And this is what I got, just a bunch of responses from the past few days um, from major, major media outlets. So there's um, a narrative of Israeli apartheid, there's obviously a Trump narrative, which is, people say it's too late for him to change. Um, there's narratives about Kashmir, there's a narrative about the Diamondbacks. Um, I don't have a Twitter, but if you did, uh, you could easily search for the word and see how it's being uh, popularly used. Um, but none of these headlines are employing the word narrative in its traditional sense. They're not talking about literature or plays or books. They're talking about sports and politics um, and people. In other words, they're talking about real life and how to structure real life in a certain way. Um, in this usage, the word narrative is almost always preceded by flip or control or change. We're giving ourselves the, um, the job of authoring these narratives. It's up to us, the protagonists, to secure a happy ending, which seems to me all very ninth grade English. Um, but when it comes down to it, we realize we might just be control freaks. Um, the prevalence of social media, like Facebook's timeline feature, allows us to view our lives in a linear progression, where one event leads into the next. Um, but yeah, here's a personal story, somewhat a benign example of how we create stories in real life. Um, I do the dishes in my household. Um, between me and my wife, we split 
split the duties and I do the dishes and the other day I was um, kind of viciously scrubbing some gunk out of a pan um, and just worked myself up into a fit thinking like, I do all of the work in this house. Um, I'm con I do the dishes every night, which is usually true. Um, but I had conveniently forgotten all that my wife actually does do, um, which is too many things to name. And this isn't about scorekeeping, but more just about how, how easy it is for us to create narratives in our heads, um, usually ones that justify ourselves. Um, another story could be that um, since we've been saved by Jesus, we no longer sin. Um, I've spent many years in living in denial of, of my sin. Um, so whether we're introspective or not, we all create narratives about ourselves. If we went to college, we told a, a narrative to get ourselves in. We sold a narrative to our prospective employers about who we were. We tell them to our parents and to our friends, and obviously we tell them to ourselves. In many ways, these stories make up who we think we are, and more often than not, this is where we live, and the story arcs that we construct in our heads. Like Taylor Swift, <clears throat> we all have at least a vague idea of who we want to be, and maybe more importantly, how we want to be perceived. Um, back in January, the political philosopher Todd May wrote about this very topic in the New York Times. He says, if we're trying to impress a date, we might tell a story that makes us seem interesting or witty or caring. Whereas if we're trying to justify a dubious act to someone who is judging us, or perhaps, perhaps ourselves, we might tell a story that makes us to be without other recourse in the situation. So this is the realm of what Mockingbird likes to call the law. When we find ourselves working to impress someone, we're fig figuratively standing before a judge, trying to appease him or her. <clears throat> and under these circumstances, we have to save face or polish face or just make ourselves look um, as good as possible. Um, Todd May continues saying, if we reflect on the stories we tell about ourselves, both to others and to ourselves, we may well find out things about who we are that complicate the view we would prefer to be identified with. So in other words, if the, Taylor, if the story is that Taylor Swift is an innocent victim who got bullied by Kanye West, we'd be very surprised to find a video showing both of them colluding in secrecy. The original narrative gets complicated, maybe even inversed. In any case, it's completely out of Taylor's control and our own. Uh, the only thing we can agree on at this point is that there are layers to it. The concept of life as narrative allows us to misjudge daily circumstances in a number of ways, one of which is that our lives are manageable at all and that our experiences can be edited. Um, one of the ways that narrative evades our control is memory. If we are to retell the experiences we had, we must remember them. The indisputable ex expert on memoir is Mary Carr, who has sold uh, three best-selling memoirs, which are all incredible. Um, she also spoke at Mockingbird several years ago, and I'd highly recommend that you watch her, um, her talk on our Vimeo page if you haven't yet. It's really um, compelling. Um, but early on in her book called The Art of Memoir, um, Mary talks about the difficulty of recalling the facts. So I'll read a little bit. Um, this is from uh, Mary's perspective, and she's also a professor at Syracuse. Um, so, on the first day of a memoir class, I often try to douse my students' flaming certainty about the unassailability of their, of their memories. Usually, I fake a fight with a colleague, in this case named Chris, while a videographer whirs in back. Then, the class is asked to record right after the event what happened. For the caliber of grad students I face down, the exercise should be a slam dunk. You'd guess that these bright, mostly young, fairly sensitive, 
uh, witnesses would nail the event down to the color of Chris's socks. And yet around the room, with each student reading from spiral notebook or legal pad, the mistakes pop up like dandelion greens. Reviewing students' blunders in these classes, I correct details on the board, fix dialogue and interpretive errors, and by the end, we've tracked up an agreed-upon version. But during this time, I sometimes implant new facts. I give my adversary a leather bracelet he doesn't wear, and even have him fiddle with it nervously. A month from the event, when asking kids to render the fight on page, I'll mostly get fed this official account. What the group deems right almost always obliterates anybody's original recollections. It's the power of groupthink, the basis of both family dynamics and most propaganda. But worse than the groupthink that warps recall are the students' original radical misjudgments. Who knows why half the class recalled my advancing toward Chris when I either stood still or backed up. Even my inertia, if they observed it at all, got recorded in almost militaristic terms. Sentences such as, she held her ground, or she was sturdy as a bulldog, appeared and I was likened to granite or steel. One year, a kid wound up speculating as, as to what Mary had done wrong to make him attack her like this. The observing students' innate prejudices shape how they view things. One guy figured Chris and I had been sleeping together. And this kid half manufactured an insidious narrative of betrayal based on our body language. A girl who'd had a stalker figured Chris was a stalker. Somebody else thought we were both high. My unscientific decades-long study proves that even the best minds warp and blur what they see. So Mary's story tells us that we can't trust our memories. They make up details, often because of preconceived biases. The most um, fundamental bias, which will protect us at all costs, is what we call self-justification. This is an inner motivation that guides all of us as we tell stories about ourselves. We arrange uh, certain details and experiences in order to justify the um, crazy, irrational things that we do. Um, about this point, I would recommend the movie Secret Window, which is based on a Stephen King story. It has Johnny Depp in it, but um, I don't have a clip because it's really just too scary. Um, but you might enjoy it. Um, I also would recommend Shutter Island, but again, no clips here, just too intense. So, <clears throat> so instead, um, I'll, I'll provide one of, a, one of the greater journalistic examples of, of self-justification, which comes to us from a reporter named David Carr, who is unrelated to Mary Carr. Um, but in 2008, he wrote a memoir called The Night of the Gun. Um, at the time of its release, uh, David Carr's memoir was somewhat ground, groundbreaking um, because while he gathered the stories of his life, he actually did fact check himself. He compiled over 60 interviews from people who knew him throughout his life, and he measured their stories against his own. It should come as no surprise that um, the two, between the two sets of stories, more often than not, they were completely at odds with each other. Um, so at the beginning of the book, David tells a story about a night he and his best friend got into a fight. As he recalls, his friend ended the fight by threatening David with a gun, scaring him away, obviously. Years later, David asked his friend, so what was up with that night that you had the gun? Like, why would you do that? And his friend said, I actually didn't have a gun. You had the gun. And they both remembered that there was a gun involved, but they also remembered pretty clearly that it was the other person who had it. Baffled, they asked David's friend's wife, who was also there, but she didn't remember a gun being involved at all. Admittedly, there was a lot of alcohol involved in this story. <laughs> but also fear and, by extension, self-justification. 
David admitted that he didn't want to think of himself as the type of person who would carry a gun, much less the kind um, who would threaten his friend with one. Regardless, what it comes down to is storytelling. Who's telling it and why? Because we're helpless self-justifiers, we're constantly skewing our stories to improve the way we look before the judge, who is oftentimes ourselves. In David's book, he asks, do we remember only the stories that we can live with? So I'm going to read a little bit of that book uh, here. Um, David says, we all remember the parts of the past that allow us to meet the future. The prototypes of the lie, white, grievous, practical, make themselves known when memory is call called to answer. Memory usually answers back with bullshit. Everyone likes a good story, especially the one who's telling it. And the historical facts are generally sullied in the process. All men mean well, and clearly most people who set out to tell the truth do not lie on purpose. How is it then that every warm bar stool contains a hero, a star of his own epic, who is the sum of his amazing stories? He says, <clears throat> most of my stories are not nice ones. Their heroic aspects are dimmed by the fact that the hand which struck was, was my own. <clears throat> Truly ennobling personal narratives describe a person overcoming the bad hand that fate has dealt him, not someone like me who takes good cards and sets them on fire. In the novelized version of my life, I was basically a good guy who took a couple of wrong turns and ended up in a ditch. But in the reported version, I was a person who saw a sign that said dangerous curves ahead and floored it, heedlessly mowing down all sorts of people at every turn. So what David's story tells us is that it's not wrong to remember things as a story, but the story is wrong if we don't remember the role that we actually played in it. David Carr, when verifying the facts, realized that he was not actually a, a tragic hero. He was not faultless, he wasn't a martyr to circumstance, he was in fact a villain. So if we want the truth, um, so we want the truth, right? Say that we could have it. Say that we could remember every detail with absolute clarity, that we could hold all the complicated gray in between memories in our heads, we could remember the ones that both condemn us and deliver us. We'd be better off, right? <clears throat> Well, there's actually a group of people who have this ability. There are about 60 people in the world currently that we know of who have a condition called HSAM, which stands for Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory. This means that they can recall almost every experience they've ever had with crystal clarity. Stephanie Fu, a reporter at, uh, for This American Life, investigated into these people's lives. Stephanie, is, um, Stephanie doesn't have HSAM, but she's interviewing somebody who does. Um, but she starts out by describing her own experience of narrative construction, um, how and why she might create a narrative in her head. Can you play that, Mads? About a year and a half ago, I had a really bad breakup. And one of the ways I got over my ex was by managing my memories, which is a pretentious way to say, I told myself he was a douchebag. I dwelled on all the bad parts of the relationship, all his irritating qualities. But recently, I was flipping through some entries in my journal from a few months before it got bad. Not for fun, for this story. I'm not that far gone. In one entry, he intuited when I was feeling low and said exactly the right thing. In another, we went to a perfect dinner where we got free dessert. Restaurants were constantly giving us free food. We couldn't figure out why, but eventually settled on the idea that people liked us because we just looked so happy. I had, of course, blocked all of these memories out because 
they didn't fit into the story I was telling myself. And I did not want them back. It had been good to forget. And the difference between me and people with HSAM is that I have the choice to stop reading the diary, to just walk away. Jill doesn't have that choice. It didn't, like, paralyze me until my husband died. Like, that his death has really, like, paralyzed me. How was it paralyzing? Because I will never, ever, ever, ever forget that. Of course, no one forgets their spouse dying. But for Jill, it's different. I am still in March of 2005. When he died? Yeah. Not every minute, but I could really put myself in that week and feel it and... So it hurts like it like it happened yesterday. Yeah. Now, the... The feeling that I was not going to survive, I don't feel that way anymore because I have survived, you know, but. Um, How often do you think about that? All, probably like 10 times a day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even though I get up every day, I feel like I'm still standing in the same place. It's like it's really being stuck. It's being stuck in a moment that you can't. There's no escaping it. Do you wish that you could forget it? Yeah. Or, 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 or remember it the way normal people remember it. How do normal people remember it? I don't know. But it's not like, I mean, I, I don't think that somebody would be sitting here 11 years later still like feeling it the way I feel it. See, I wish you could understand and I wish I could understand what it's like to be able to like let things fade and or, or not let, just that's the way it is. Jill says it's not like she's only reliving bad memories. She likes to go back to one of her favorite afternoons, October 19th, 1979, in the ninth grade when she had a bad day at school and her mom surprised her with homemade soup when she got home. But when the bad ones come on, she can't help but get emotional. And they come on all the time. If you did not have H. Sam, how do you think your life would be different today? Um, I think that I would have been able to move forward. I think I probably would be married today. I don't think I would be so scared. I would be able to just move, walk forward instead of constantly looking back. Okay, so let, let's put let's let's reverse this so that you maybe you understand. Yeah. So your boyfriend, you guys broke up. Yeah. How long were you like upset about it, or until the point where you felt like you can move forward without thinking about it all the time, or move forward without it like ripping your heart out? Oh, God. Like three months. <laughs> I don't have that luxury. And so are you jealous of me? No. No? Mm-mm. Because I, I, on the flip side of all that, I can't imagine what it's like to not remember my life. Like, I f really can't understand how nobody does. 
even though it has tormented me, it it's just, everything was just is so important to me that I just, I hold on to it so tight that I wouldn't want to not be able to do that. I'm not jealous of her either. Ever since talking to these people with H. Sam, for the first time in my life, I actually feel just fine about forgetting. I know that sounds like it's the end of the radio story, this is just what you say, but like, I cannot stress how sincere I am about this. Totally fine about forgetting. Yeah, so if you're uh, like me and you have the tendency to forget, you're gonna construct narratives anyways, and it's just gonna happen. This isn't to say that um, making narratives, <clears throat> constructing narratives is, a, is um, wrong and that you're not allowed to do that. Um, but on the flip side, remembering everything and knowing everything would actually keep us up at night because our real lives are not stories and they're not manageable. They're collections of experiences, including death and sadness and also happiness. But it's a totally unruly mixture that can't be molded into a straight line, a narrative arc. So as much as narratives can condemn us or reveal us to be liars or unreliable narrators, they can also be really helpful. They put life in terms that we can understand and they trigger our emotions, like empathy. It's huge. <clears throat> so stories that we tend to lie about our own are sometimes like little band-aids uh, that wrap us in um, against the inexplicable wounds of a really strange world. Um, in other words, if narrative is the problem, it's also the solution. Um, but before I explain that further, I'm gonna show one more clip. Um, this one is from a movie called Amistad, which a lot of you have probably seen before. I know if you go to my church, you've seen this clip. Um, <clears throat> in which two slaves find comfort by seeing themselves in a story greater than their own. Oh, yeah. 
who are them away. Tingi yili, bi. Yamuge. Be, omu avoy. Bo mu pieni. Nagbi ipie, tingi wa alofa. Longo bito, se atingi wa. So in this clip, we see that the gospel story brings comfort. Um, these men are given hope by a story of death and resurrection. But when we think about it, it's not just a story that gives hope to the suffering, but it gives hope to those who have also inflicted suffering. It gives hope to those of us who are petty narrative editors, to those of us who exhaust so much energy trying to control the story, to the Taylors and Kanyes in each of us. We're given hope knowing that our story, no matter how we tell it, is actually cradled in this greater story. Um, think, think about Palm Sunday. In many congregations on Palm Sunday, churches will re retell the story of Jesus' passion, reenacting the last night of Jesus' life. The congregation listens as the story plays out. Uh, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and put on trial before Pontius Pilate. And then Pilate consults the crowd, asking the people whether or not Jesus should be crucified. And as a congregation, we respond in unison, crucify him. So this is actually our story, not to be reliable narrators, but to be hopeless mistakes makers. Year after year, returning to those pews to shout crucify him. We may be liars and we may be mentally unstable, but we can be counted on time and again to crucify the one who only wants to deliver us. And when we do, we're forgiven. The Bible tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Our mistellings, our sins, are forgiven by God. Our narrative is given to us. It's told for us, and the ending is good. So that's all that I have for you guys. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, I hope you're having a fun, uh, fun weekend at Mockingbird and got a good dinner ahead and a disco later tonight. So. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs>